The rest of you I'd invite to open up to Judges chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you're new with us, we've been in a series on the book of Judges. And if you're like many people, the book of Judges, if you read your Bible, probably isn't all that dog-eared and highlighted. There's not a lot of warm, fuzzy devotional thoughts in the book of Judges, but it's the Word of God, and we've been learning just some incredible things from it, being really encouraged by it. This morning, I want you to think through this. You know, all of us have felt a sting of being liked for what we have or what we can give rather than for who we are. We call it in our vernacular being used. And while all of us have felt that before, and that's just a really universal experience, I think that all of us also have been guilty of doing that same thing to others and doing that same thing in our relationship to God. Last week we saw this from Judges 10, but the hurt that comes from being used is from God. That's a God-like emotion. He experiences that as well. Let me give you a quick, a quick lesson on modern language. For those of you who may have grown up in a different generation, if you were walking down the street and someone said, you're such a tool, um, let me just explain that for, for a second. That's not a compliment. That, that is a slam in some sort. Or, you know, so uh, basically they are thinking that you are one who lacks the mental capacity to know that you're being used. That's what it means to call someone a tool. So being used is bad. Being called a tool is bad. And yet, let me show you something. Each week in the book of Judges, here's what we've been seeing. We've been seeing that God has been raising up people to change the course of history. Judges 2.16 says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. We've been watching this cycle over and over and over. It's covering decades and now centuries of Israel's history. They're sinning and rebellious. God lets them be plundered and slaved by other people. Then He raises up people and uses them for His glory to rescue them out of that sin cycle. So being used, evidently, is actually good. And being a tool is good. How can this mystery be? How can being used and being a tool be good and bad? Here it is. Being used is different than feeling used, right? Genuinely being used is different than feeling used. Genuinely being used fits like a hand in a glove. Feeling used doesn't fit so well. We all hate the feeling of that. Jephthah, the guy that we're going to look at this morning, the judge that's raised up by God this morning, feels used by the people of Israel. We know that from the little exchange that, that we're given. But he actually is used by Almighty God to rescue his people. Just before Judges 11.1 1 comes Judges, 11, or Judges 10, 17, and 18. Look up there for a moment. This kind of sets the stage for what's about to happen. Then the, Ammon, then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now the author of Judges is kind of foreshadowing. He's kind of setting up, here's who's coming next. And the rest of Judges 11 is all about this person who's going to rise up and fight. You know, stories always make more sense when you learn a little bit about their Character. So let's read 11, 1 to 4, kind of lays out who Jephthah is. 
Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, think about who those kids are. Those are his half-brothers, same dad, but different mom, right? They drove Jephthah out. Why? Because he's the, he's the half-brother. He's the son of a prostitute. And said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. In these few verses, we get a little summary of Jephthah's life. There's a lot in that summary, isn't there? There's a lot of life in there, a lot of emotion in there. Kind of made me think about, what if your life was encapsulated in three verses in the Bible? What would it say? What would kind of the overarching picture be that would start to paint a picture of your life? Well, Jephthah, we see some clear things. Mighty warrior, but he's the son of a prostitute. That begins to shape his life. Like many children today... The kids bear the weight of their parents' sin. Was Jephthah innocent of being created by the union of a man and a prostitute? Absolutely. He did nothing to to deserve the punishment of that. And yet, who got punished? He did. No inheritance for you. And probably worse, we would all agree, is this. No acceptance, right? It's one thing not to have your inheritance. You're not set financially. You don't get in on all the stuff. That's one thing. But to your very core of who you are, you're not accepted. You're not one of us. So he's driven out from his home. It's a really common storyline. This isn't like we can't identify with Jephthahs of the world who are walking around bearing some of the pain and punishment of their parents' sin. I want you to think about shaping influences for a moment. Family is one of them, where we came from. Where you came from helps define who you are. But in addition to that, there are your experiences. What has happened to you? What have you done? Your family and where you came from, what you've done, makes up a part of who you are. But there's a third really critical piece to this, and that is your response to it. How do you interpret where you come from? What have you taken on? What names have you been called that you've let land on you, that you wear like, like a garment. What experiences have happened to you, and what's your interpretation of those? How does God fit into that? Man, we could take a lot of hours this morning just hearing from one another's stories, and, and hearing experiences, sometimes very, very similar experiences, that are interpreted completely different. And when you think about what makes you, you, it's at least these things. I don't pretend to have like it all boiled down. But, but these three things are definitely shaping influences that make you who you are. Jephthah's out in the land of Tob. It's beyond civilization. It's out in the wild. He gathers to himself adventurers. In essence, he's kind of living the Robin Hood lifestyle. Out there, Jephthah begins to, to become a survivor. That's what he is. He's a fighter. He's an outcast pirate from a very emotionally disturbed home. He has no real pedigree to be the leader of God's people or the rescuer of God's people. And when you see that in plain day, you say, wow, and yet God uses him. That that seems to be just the kind of person God specializes in coming in. You have no pedigree. You have no belonging here. I'm going to use you. Isn't that what redemption's all about? 
Redemption is taking those things and beginning to, to make it useful again. Think about some of the traits that he possesses. Street smarts, shrewdness, and fighting ability. Let me ask you, do those three things get developed by people who, who live in palaces? Who have life handed them on a silver spoon? Probably not. You probably don't find street, street smart, shrewd survivors in easy places. Those are things that are developed by people who've lived some life, who've gone through some hurt, and are still standing around to talk about it. So there's a little bit of where Jephthah has come from. Let me move on to the story of what happened to Jephthah and what he did. So so kind of his experiences. Look at verses 1 to 3. He's driven out and rejected. Now he is turned to, Jephthah, as one who we need your might and power. Look at verse verse 4 with me. It says, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Pause. They're in distress. There's bullies coming in surrounding them. They realize a fight is on their hand. The leaders get together and say, huh. We're hosed. We need a plan. And they remember Jephthah. So they go to him, and they're, they're, they're making the pitch. Hey, come fight with us. Come so we can defeat these people. Uh, here's what Jephthah does. He sniffs it out that he's being used. And he puts out very clearly before them this idea that, hey, I'm in the strong position. I have what you need. I'm a mighty warrior. Remember that from verse 1? This guy's a mighty warrior. That's why they're seeking him out. So he calls them on it. Look at verse uh, 7. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Do you see what he's doing? Right? He's calling them out. He's saying, let's just put very clearly on the negotiating table that I'm in the upper hand. You're using me. You drove me out and now you want what I have. He's doing what shrewd people do. He's showing, saying, look, let's, let's, let's put this out here really clear-like. Remember Abimelech from a few weeks ago? Abimelech was, was Gideon's son. Gideon named his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. Remember that? Here's what Abimelech did. He went for a power grab. Much like many wicked dictators around the world, what goes around comes around. He gained his throne by a violent takeover, and he died by violence, right? We still see that same pattern happening over and over and over again. God allowed that, but I wouldn't say God blessed that. That wasn't, that wasn't him you know, walking in God's plan, being called up. Now we have someone in Jephthah who's also a strong and mighty warrior, but he's shrewd. And what we see is he's a God-fearing man. He actually mentions Yahweh by name, I think, more than any other judge. So this kind of rough character out in the, in the outskirts, not with a great pedigree, he's got, this, he's got this faith that we see through Judges chapter 11. So he's a fighter too, but he's a shrewd one. And he uses this opportunity to do what he'd probably done his whole life. He's negotiating. He's going to work the hustle. He's going to figure out how he gets on top. That's what survivors do. Verse 8, here's the elders and him coming to an agreement. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now. (laughs) 
please help us. That you may go with us to fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. All of a sudden, they've sweetened the deal. You can be our head. You can be our leader. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Are we clear on this, leaders? I'm going to come back home again, but I accept. I'll be your ruler. And the elders of Gilead and said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. What we're going to see now in the story is that Jephthah takes his kind of wise as serpent ways that he's developed, and he's going to turn the spotlight on these bullies who are surrounding the Israelites. He's going to say, okay, now I'm going to take my shrewdness, my ability to do battle, and here's how I'm going to do it. Here's what we see. For many verses, verses 12 to 28, in fact, we see diplomacy. So we've got this mighty warrior. That's how he's laid out right out of the gate, and he goes right to diplomacy. He uses logic and humility and restraint and wisdom rather than muscle. What we might call this is shrewdness. He didn't just go out fists blaring. He decided to figure a different way first. Remember when Gandalf says to the one attacking him, he says, you shall not pass! Right? Remember that? So here's what he's going to do. Instead of, instead, of, instead of immediately going to war with that and showing a physical might, he's going to use you shall not pass. He's going to give very three clear arguments as to why the Ammonites have no right to be coming in and attacking where the Israelites are standing. Okay? So watch for these. We're not going to take the time to read it, but in verses 15 to 22, you can jot that down and read it later, he goes into a little history lesson. He basically appeals to history and lays out how they are standing, where they're standing. By the way, does this feel relevant at all that people are arguing over land in the Middle East? I mean, we get this, right? Is it complex and deep, and does it go back centuries, and is there a lot of he said, she said, and wars fought, and you killed my brother, so I killed two of yours? No, you didn't. I mean, this is what's going on right now today. Where's the boundary? That's exactly what's happening here. So he goes into a history lesson on why this is, in fact, Israel's land. Then he goes into a fair and square argument. The fair and square argument is as old as the schoolyard, right? Hey, it's fair and square. Why? Well, here's my logic. Here's my reasoning. And what he does is he basically goes to the logic of the, of the times. The logic of the times was this. If your God gives you victory in a battle, then your God has given you that land. So here's what he essentially says in verses 23 to 25. Look, we'll keep what Yahweh has given to us. You keep what your little g-gods have given to you. Fair and square? That's what he's appealing to. He's saying, we're, we're just doing what is common practice. God has given us this land, and it's ours. You keep what your God has given you. And then in verse 26, he questions the timing of this whole thing. He says, look, if this was a legitimate claim, why didn't you do this 300 years ago? That's how long we've been here. We've been here for a really long time. Why all of a sudden? What's the new information that you have that says this is the right timing of it? What he's pointing out is it's not legitimate or else you would have tried this sooner. And then, drum roll please, 
Judges chapter 11, verse 27. Look at it with your own eyes so you know that I'm not lying. Someone finally appeals to the rightful judge in the book of Judges. This is a miracle. He says this, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Catch this. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. It's taken a long time in the book of Judges where the people were generally doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes to do and judging themselves to have someone finally publicly declare in a public dispute, I appeal to God Almighty to judge between us. As I was reading this and thinking about this, I thought how rare that is in the news that I watch. How rare that is in arguments that I see going on. How rare that people say, you've wronged me, I'm standing in the right. God be the judge before us. It's very rare. It's very rare here in the book of Judges. In verse 28, the story goes on to make you realize that the opposing king obviously thought that he could take Jephthah because he ignores all his diplomacy. And when it comes to truth... This is true whether you're sharing just a reality with someone, a next-door neighbor, or whether you're sharing the gospel with someone, or whether you're arguing over land grabs. And that is this, that well-laid-out reason and logic, diplomacy, all have a leash. There comes a point sometimes where, where that is getting you absolutely nowhere. Do people always function off of reason, logic, and accuracy and facts? No. Much of the time, they don't. I think this king basically is like, he probably has a point on some of those, but I think I can take this guy. We're bigger and stronger than him. So he blasts right past that. Fortunately, they've got the right guy because he's a mighty warrior. Verse 29 says this. Let me get past all the diplomacy things. Verse 29 says this. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. He sets off to do battle, and God gives him the victory, and he lives happily ever after. Not quite. Not quite. He does get the victory. He does have the Spirit of God on him. He is walking in God's will. But like so many of us, it's hard to keep things going, going straight. In the midst of the moment, in the heat of the moment, he makes this rash vow that he, that he must have regretted for the rest of his life. Opened his mouth, said some things that he wished he hadn't. Look at verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. I don't know if you can see this in the text, but I wanted to put it in front of you in case you're not looking at your Bible. You see the if then? What's he doing? He's negotiating. Jephthah is going to, I think, his go-to thing. He's a guy who's lived his whole life working the hustle, working the angle, and he's going to a negotiating thing with God. If this happens, then this will happen. 
to make sure this deal closes. I'm about to go out to battle. My life's at stake. I need to kind of grease the wheels a little bit and make sure this thing closes. God, if you do this, I'll do this. He's negotiating with God. He's relating to God the same way that he's probably related to men his entire life. And it's a mistake. Now, what he's doing is common practice to surrounding nations. Again, the idea of appeasing the gods with human sacrifice, right? This is an, this is an, old, this is an old thing. Human or animal sacrifice isn't distinct to Christianity. It's not distinct to, to, to Judaism. So what he's doing is kind of common in the culture that he's living in. But he's let the surrounding culture desensitize him in at least a couple of ways. He lived in a very violent time. So killing things was a lot more normal than it is for us today. He was desensitized to violence. But secondly, he was desensitized to what God even likes and wants. Culture has a way of doing this for us. Would you say that many of us are desensitized to violence? To our grandparents? Yes. Can we get desensitized to the very things that God asks for and wants of us? Yes. That's what's gone on with, with, with Jephthah here. Turns out his daughter was the first to walk out of his house. You know what he was banking on? He was banking on probably a household servant. Never thought he'd pay the high price of his daughter. And we see that because later on in the story, he's grief-stricken over that. Church, worship isn't a free-for-all where we just do whatever seems right to us. Much of what seems right to us might just be cultural norm. Remember depravity from last week? Even as we bring our best to God, that's woven into to, to who we are. Jesus said to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, God never asked for this. God never said, I want you to sacrifice people to me. When you read your Bible, you understand this. The only sacrifice God wants is self-sacrifice, right? That you would offer yourself up. And that's not in payment back to God. That's not to appease God. That's not to say, God, thank you very much. That's to say, God, you have been so merciful. How could I do anything but offer all that I am to you? That's the kind of sacrifice that God calls for. Not to sacrifice other people while you get to live. Romans 12 goes on to emphasize not being conformed to culture in our minds. The very problem Jephthah had. He was doing what was culturally acceptable, culturally normal, and it was wicked in the sight of God. If you adopt a wicked culture's stance on things, you will do wicked things before, before God. And many around you, they'll applaud you. They'll say, great job, we're right there with you. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jephthah's mind needed some reworking. But it was too late. He had made a vow that he was going to act on. Here's my question for you that we'll look at in community groups this week. What kind of reworking is needed for believers today? What kind of reworking is needed in the hearts and minds of believers today? I think the things that we're going to tend to adopt from our culture have to do with areas of purity, our view on sex, our view on wealth, our view on position. These are some of the gods of our age. And I wouldn't say if we're not careful. I'd say we haven't been careful. These things have seeped in and are seeping in. My question is, how are you reworking that? 
Are you going to any kind of a standard to have a clear picture of what's right and wrong? Or are you doing what we're reading happening over and over and over in the book of Judges? Are you just doing what seems right to you and your friends? We talked about this at men's group this week. Our passage last week in Judges 10 brought this up. But this whole idea of negotiating with God, I think there's a certain sense where built into our flesh says this, God, I know that you save me. You do kind of the heavy lifting, but I'm going to help just a little. I'm going to kind of chip in a little bit over here. If you ever find yourself negotiating with God, stop. If you ever think you're being generous with God, stop. There's an understanding that comes from reading your Bible over and over and letting it just saturate your mind as to who we're talking about when we pray to God. That in a very freeing way, according to Galatians 5, sets you free from performance. It makes you very small in a very freeing kind of a way. I hope you have sympathy for Jephthah. I hope you have sympathy for his rash vow. Because how many mouths in this room have proven a snare to your own life? There was a big thing growing up where <laughs> I was in a youth group and everyone had to have a life verse. And I was like, I kind of felt the pressure. Shoot, I think I need a life verse. And all I know is John 3.16. And that seems kind of lame to have the same one as everyone else. I better read my Bible. So I think God worked it to kind of use it for some good things. But everyone had a life verse. I was reading about two weeks ago, thinking of Jephthah. And I think I found his life verse. I think life verses that we pick for ourselves tend to kind of show off better parts of us. This is a really accurate picture, I think, of Jephthah from what I know of him. It's found in Proverbs 18. First part of it says this, It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. If Jephthah were to step back and look at his life, not just his years in Tob, but the whole grand picture of it, he must have looked and said, Wow, much of my life... Uh, centered around this idea of righting a wrong, of fighting justice. That was a big part of who he was. He was one of the judges. He's in the hall of faith in Hebrews. He accomplished crazy big things for God. His life centered on fighting for righting wrongs. And then it goes on to say this, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. What we just saw from Judges 11, that's not him. He's wise in this area. He uses diplomacy, right? Did he end up beating the guys up? Yes. But he starts off not by doing what this calls a fool, walking into a, into a fight. And then catch the very next verse and how tragic this is. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Jephthah must have regretted the vow that he made in the heat of the moment every single day the rest of his life. I can't imagine. But his mouth, his words, proved a snare to his soul. We not only identify with Jephthah, but we learn from him. Remember, the Old Testament's written for our instruction. That's why I long for you to be in this. We want to walk through this together as a church, but I want you coming to me and saying, I found myself in the Old Testament. Tell me about it. And we see the character of God working and interacting with very flawed heroes. Jephthah is a tool in both senses 
of the Word. Now, tool can be a good thing. Let me show you this. This is not my workbench at home. This is not a picture I took this week. Now, I'm using the logic of evolution for this to eventually organize, my workbench to eventually organize to look like this. But I'm only five years in so far, so I... I must need a few more million years for it to really get settled in looking good. But so far, it's not working out. I show this picture of a workbench because of this. When I want to go do a project, you know what I do? I go to my friend's house who have tools. And here's the better part. I go to my friend's house who have not only the right tools, but they know how to use them. And they can show me. Projects go so much better when you have the right tool, right? Being a tool is a great thing. Did you know that you were designed by God on purpose? Do you know that? Do you wear that like a garment in the morning? God, you've made me. Those of you who always want to change things about you, stop. Stop. God designed you that way. Not sinful things that we're supposed to be dead to and growing in, but you know what I'm talking about. Those physical characteristics, those personality traits, that quirky way you have of looking at life. I think one of the greatest sins is conformity. That we would all just be cookie cutters of one another. That every church would look exactly the same. Nonsense. That absolutely destroys our creative God of all of His creative power. Remember Ehud from chapter 3? Where Creator God takes the left-handed Prius owner and makes him a threat to a king. And he kills him and rescues the people of Israel. Go on to think about Gideon and Deborah. We'll look at Samson in a few weeks. All of them have quirks and shortcomings. All of them unique in their own ways. And unique's not always a good thing. Unlike how Disney would tell you. Unique can be really bad and weird. But God uses that to alter the course of history. Here's what I want you to do right now, and I want you to actually do this. I want you to turn to someone right now, and I want you to say to them, you are such a tool, okay? To which, when they say that to you, you reply, thank you! Go, do it! All right. I don't know if you tweet, but that'd be fun to tweet. I just got called a tool in the middle of church by my neighbor. I don't know where you came from, your family situation. I don't know what's happened to you. And I don't know how you've interpreted those happenings. But God does. But God does. And he's the master designer and artist. And you are you for a reason. Here's what I find so powerful about the character and the ability of God, the magnitude of his creativity, is that in Jephthah we see that the Father takes even the wrong done to us and the wrong done by us, and somehow he can take that and redeem it and make it useful. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When we read a story like Jephthah, we see this worked out scripturally. Ron made, made mention that sometimes people can kind of just cream and sugar things. Don't people cream and sugar this verse all the time? 
It, it, it may not be the right thing to walk into a hospital visit and me just to blurt this out all the time. Hey, don't worry. God works all things together for good. Are we good here? Let me pray quick and we'll be out. That's a trite answer. But when I read Jephthah, when I look at that, I say, wow, this guy's in the hall of faith. God used him. God used his junk. For much of his life, all this hurt was there. He was booted out. He had no inheritance. He had no acceptance. And yet God took that very fact. He's a Gileadite, so that means he had an in. God redeemed his roots. Some of you don't believe this morning that God can redeem your broken family situation. Some of you came from very rough places. I've heard snippets of some of your stories. Some of you have just run as far as you can from that, never wanting to even acknowledge or think about that ever, ever again. New York and San Francisco and L.A. are filled with people like that. Get me as far away from my family as I can. We see from Jeff that God can redeem our roots. How can God possibly use me? Where do I fit? Let me show you a little something that I've shown you before, but it's a little exercise that you can just jot down. You could look it up online if you don't get it all here, but it's a little acronym SHAPE. And in terms of trying to find your fit in ministry, I've come back to this time and time again, even in my own mind. You have spiritual gifts if you're a Christian. That's promised by God. You have a heart. You naturally are concerned and think about some things. You're passionate about certain things, and you couldn't care less about other things. You have natural abilities that God's given to you. All your life, you've done things, and people go, wow, you're really good at that. You're like, huh, I don't even think about that. I just do it. That's called a natural ability. You have a personality. Your personality is complex. It's been shaped by all these things. But that you that makes you you, that personality, God's designed that into you. It's so fun having more than one child. Because you can sit there and go, wow, there's just, they've been raised in the same situation. They're, they're literally wearing the same clothes because they just keep getting handed down. They eat the same food. And, and yet they're so different. It's called personality. And then experiences. And when you look at all those things together, you begin to say, you know what? God, God has uniquely shaped me for, for ministry. It doesn't mean there's one specific ministry uh, that's out there. But look at these things and say, huh, why am I frustrating everyone around me when I do this as a ministry in the church? Is it supposed to be this hard? The answer is probably no. Let's have a conversation and look at some of these things. All right, that's the good use of how Jephthah was a tool. Let me close by showing you the kind of bad part of this. Jephthah was a tool in that he was despised and rejected. He was an outcast. He was mistreated by his very own. Now, I'm talking about Jephthah, but some of your minds are already going to Jesus Christ. Wasn't that Jesus? Wasn't that what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 would happen? Hey, the Messiah is going to come, but he's going to be despised by people. His own people are going to put him to death. In the right-side-up kingdom that Jesus announced... Things that are despised here are actually beautiful. And things that are prized here are actually worthless. And those who are thought weak are in fact strong. Look at 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to Him 
a living stone, Jesus is, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jephthah's a pointer to another man who would come one day and be a tool in the eyes of the world and a tool in the hands of God. So there it is. Being a tool in God's hands means living as a tool in the world's eyes. Even if you aren't told that to your face, you're being thought about it. Because as a Christian, your values are just a little off. They're a little quirky. You'll be thought of as quaint. You'll be thought of as reckless. You'll be thought of as irresponsible. You'll be thought of as clueless. Why? Because you're living for a kingdom that has a completely inverted value system. Praise God. Praise God. I genuinely want to be called a tool this week by someone who didn't hear this message, and I want my instinct to be, yes! Thank you! To which the friend or stranger will walk away confused. Right? Ultimately, when you look at Jephthah's life, each week, by the way, we've been having Exhibit A and Exhibit B, and we've been using these to kind of see what's valued in the person. And in Jephthah, here's what I would say. Feeling like yesterday's newspaper. Let me explain that for our younger crowd. You used to buy a newspaper, and the day you read it, it would then go into either the trash, or it's pre-recycle, or you'd save it for the Boy Scouts, and me and my brothers would come around to the neighborhood and collect them and get money. But the day that the day is over, it becomes useless. Go line your birdcage with it. It's just nothing. So people would say they feel used like yesterday's newspaper. Ultimately, Jephthah didn't get stuck here. Do you see that? How many people are stuck in this moment right here? They feel used. They came from a bad place. They can't get past this. And it defines the rest of their life. Ultimately, Jephthah says, Wow, in all my quirks, in all my design, I had no idea why I was like this. My whole life, I I may have questioned it, whatever else. But then along comes the invention of the bike. And people need to take their chain off at some point. And someone designs a tool that fits perfectly for taking on and off bike chains. And all of a sudden you go, wow, that's why I have these two weird handles. And so he values being a tool by God. And he's used by God. And he's commemorated in Scripture for all of time. We look no further than Jesus Christ as the example of one who was actually a beautiful tool in the hands of God and thought a tool by the world. Read the Gospels, it's true then. Talk to people today, it's true right now. People think Jesus is a tool, they think you're a tool for believing in Jesus. In every accurate sense of how that slang word is used. I want to leave us with this thought. Why is it that I worship God today? I said at the start that it's a universal experience to be used by people, but I think we also universally tend to use other people, and particularly God. Do you come to God seeking Him as beautiful? Are you in love with the gift giver, or are you in love with the gifts that the gift giver gives? A test of our heart is probably not Best tested on Sunday morning while we're all singing together warm and fuzzy. A test is probably what does our instinct go to when circumstances come along? 
Do we negotiate with God? Do we feel like God isn't coming through on his end of the bargain because we've been so good at attending church and giving to the poor? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have shown yourself beautiful to us. We know that in the flesh, the gospel's utter foolishness. We know that in the flesh, we don't seek you out. There's no one so righteous that they say, I need to seek out God today. And so, Lord, we receive that as a gift. And as we sing now, draw our hearts to seek after you and you alone.